Welcome to Shelving Cart. I'm Sarah. And I'm Teddy. And we're both librarians here to have a podcast book club with each other and all of you. On Shelving Cart, we talk about books like it's a one-hour book club meeting. So we talk about likes, dislikes, reviews, general feelings, and more. And generally completely spoil the book, so be warned. Uh, Today we are talking about The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. Uh, And as you may know, The Hunger Games is a very successful movie franchise. So we're also going to spoil the movies. (laughs) Um, And we're also going to spoil a little bit uh, the rest of the Hunger Games series, which includes Catching Fire and Mockingjay. Uh, So, you know, be warned. There are no uh, spoilers for The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes because neither of us have read that. So if that's the only one you haven't read, we're not going to be really talking about that. So you're good. (laughs) Ready to go. Um, Before we start talking about the book, I have a little introduction on Suzanne Collins herself and how The Hunger Games came to be. Tell me all about Suzanne, Sarah. What's up with Suzanne Collins? Suzanne Collins was born in 1962 in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, She is the youngest of four children and spent most of her life, her young life, moving around. After graduating NYU with a Master of Fine Arts in Dramatic Writing, she began writing for children's TV shows, including Clarissa Explains It All. While working on various shows for young children to young adults, she met James Proimos, and he, who was also a writer, suggested that she should try writing children's books. Um, With her suggestion in mind, she began imagining kind of an urban Alice in Wonderland where one throughs one falls through a manhole as opposed to a rabbit hole and that's where she got the idea for the Underland Chronicles featuring five books the first volume being Gregor the Overlander Um, it's a fantasy war series featuring giant rats and bats and a young named man named Gregor Um, and the books are for middle grade readers so ages 9 to 11 uh, and they were released one year after another from 2003 to 2007, which is kind of insane. Just one book after another. Let's acknowledge workhorse Suzanne Collins. I think it's because she worked on television. I think that that's just like a way different environment. That would be my guess is that you have to always have to push against deadlines on TV. Kind of keep the writer's room like going. So I don't know. Right. A writer's room mentality from Suzanne. And I will also say that Gregor the Overlander, while it is for middle grade readers, holds the fuck up. Love Gregor the Overlander now as an adult, not least because of the giant rats. I do love me some giant rats and some giant bats. Um, But also I do this thing because I am the librarian uncle where I give my younger cousin, he's like, what, 12 And I give him books all the time from my childhood, which I know is like not truly the best strategy. (laughs) But I did recently for his birthday, give him all of Gregor the Overlander um, because that shit slaps and holds up to this day. Gregor the Overlander confirmed slaps, but one day Suzanne Collins was channel surfing and she was switching back and forth from a reality TV show and footage of the invasion of Iraq. And she said, quote, the two began to blur in this very unsettling way. And that is how the Hunger Games was born. We'll, we'll get into that, right? Like, is that really the story of how the Hunger Games was born? Or 
Was it something more nefarious? Stay tuned. But so she published the first one in 2008 and then the sequel, take note, Catching Fire in 2009 and the final installment, Mockingjay, published in 2010, which if you notice, that means she published a book from 2003 to 2010, wrote and published every year for eight years. Truly wild. In 2020, she released a prequel, um, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes which features the 10th Hunger Games. Um, it is basically, I haven't read it, but what from what I understand, it is the rise to power of President Snow. So, according to Suzanne Collins' website, The Hunger Games has been sold in 54 territories and in 52 various languages. So, as we all know, it is a very popular novel that took up a lot of like the cultural zeitgeist from 2008 to like 2014 with the books being published and then the movies coming out like one year after another so that is kind of how the brief history of how Suzanne Collins ended up writing The Hunger Games. And I will say that when I told people that we were talking about The Hunger Games for this podcast a lot of people were like why? (laughs) Um, And I will say right like it is sort of a funny first choice uh but also not fucking really because, and I will say this, first of all, let's dispel with the librarians only like serious literature BS, right? Yeah. Like I love campy trash, which um, <laughs> debatable whether The Hunger Games is campy trash truly and it's like heart of hearts, but this is like, you know, whatever, it's fun. The other thing that I will say is that Hunger Games is having its second moment in the sun. I have seen it all over Um, Instagram reels, TikTok, like whatever, people are talking about it. And that is because A Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which I did not realize when we chose this book. Have you seen the trailer Uh, for it? No, I have only seen various Instagram reels about it. Should we just dive right into it? Let's start talking about this book. I can read the back of it out loud. Would you please? Yes. At the top, it says, winning means fame and fortune. Losing means certain death. The Hunger Games have begun. Dot, dot, dot. Strong pitch. In the ruins of a place once known as North America lies the nation of Panem, a shining capital surrounded by 12 outlying districts. The capital is harsh and cruel and keeps the districts in line by forcing them all to send one boy and one girl between the ages of 12 and 18 to participate in the annual Hunger Games, a fight to the death on live TV. 16-year-old Katniss Everdeen regards it as a death sentence when she steps forward to take her sister's place in the games. But Katniss has been close to dead before, and survival for her is second nature. Without really meaning to, she becomes a contender. But if she is to win, she will have to start making choices that weigh survival against humanity and life against love. Drama! Mm -hmm. Okay, (laughs) our first blurb comes from Stephen King. A violent, jarring speed wrap of a novel that generates nearly constant suspense. I couldn't stop reading. Okay. Okay, Stephen. Stephen. I would not expect Stephen to weigh in on a young adult novel with such panache. I don't know. I feel like he's always writing blurbs about anything that has anything like vaguely gruesome in it. He is, he's got a blurb on He's there. ready to go. Yeah, I think that's true. Okay, who's oh. next? Okay. I'm going to give you the name after I read this one. I was so obsessed with this book, dot, dot, dot. The Hunger Games is amazing. Stephanie Meyer. Oh 
My God. Okay, we're going to come back around to Twilight. That is wild that Stephanie wrote a blurb for The Hunger Games. Yep. Okay. This is just like a time capsule. I feel like this this book. Brilliantly plotted and perfectly paced. Quote, John Green. Shut the fuck up right now. (laughs) John. (laughs) You're right. It is such a time capsule. John, weighing in. Okay, well, let's just get right into it. What did you think? Did you like it? Did you like reading it? Did you like rereading it? For context, I guess we've both read it before. Right. So, okay, here's something about me is that I don't fucking remember my childhood. Uh, (laughs) I think that's a symptom of being an anxious child. I was really scared a lot of the time. Don't remember a lot of what I did. I do remember this moment in the we're gonna say cultural zeitgeist like 20 billion times but it was a it was a moment in the culture right like you had twilight you had the hunger games and i'm gonna throw this one in there and this is this is a take you also had one direction you had to pick one of the boys (laughs) um i see where you're going i see where you're going it's the same mechanism um and for context for our listeners I'm a man. Uh, and at the time, no, I wasn't. And I, <laughs> I, uh, so I got really good at um, fake picking a boy to uh, root for in various scenarios. For One Direction, it was Niall. I felt like he was underappreciated. That's a good choice. And I think that the, thank you. the world of TikTok would agree with you to this day. So good choice. You perfect you out the best one for twilight i think i was team edward just because it's sexier to be alive forever than it is to be a wolf uh and then uh, debatable i know but listen this was <laughs> this was me just faking it till i made it in the in the moment i, I definitely would have agreed with you but i definitely think like being a wolf is sexier I think you might be right anyway we're moving on this <laughs> we can't get into the twilight stuff uh, but for the Hunger Games, I don't remember who I picked. And I think because I read them fast, like quickly, I wanted the story. I wanted it done. And I think I only read them once. And so they've sort of become lost in the like archive of books that I speed read as a middle schooler. So I don't really remember what I thought of it when I was a kid. As an adult... I fucking loved it. This shit has everything you need. It is action-packed. There is an immediate love triangle. We will get to my table uh, later in the episode. I have a table with three columns. Gail, Peta, direct comparisons. Those are the three. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So like murder, kissing, uh, I hate rich people, uh, workers of the world unite. It's all, it's all in here. Um, the communist in me loved it. Uh, I thought it was great. Um, you know, whatever. It's a little stilted. I think that's the YA of the era was just like, you kind of had to hit everything on the nose. I think. Bing, 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 bing. Totally. Oh my God. Yes. Bing, bing, bing is like the perfect description for it. I think YA has grown up a lot since we were teenagers, right? Like, I think now it's a little bit more nuanced, a little less bing, bing, bing. Um, But yeah, I had so much fun. Did you have fun? 
Yes, I absolutely had fun. You know, so the reason why I proposed the idea of us reading the Hunger Games is that um, a couple weeks ago, I was looking for a movie to watch on a plane, and I just wanted to be very um, immersed in a story. So I was like, you know what? I haven't rewatched the Hunger Games. I had actually never seen Mockingjay Part 1 and Part 2 because when my middle, my freshman year of high school heart when the, the when Mockingjay came out was like, I did not enjoy this book because I hadn't grown up enough in between like the books being published because the last book is dark. So all that to say, I never went and saw the last two movies I saw one and two um and so I was like I'll do that I'll watch them on the plane so I watched the Hunger Games and that first movie honestly is so good it is so good and I remember seeing it in theaters and not thinking it was that good when I first saw it because I had read reread the book right before it but I hadn't read the book in De- like a decade since I that movie came out so at least a decade more than a decade and I was like wow this has like a really great like directorial vision like it's very gray washed like very dark and I was like wow this is way better and more mature than I remembered it so maybe I should go we should I should go back and reread the Hunger Games so I convinced Teddy to do it with me um and I I really enjoyed reading it. I definitely found myself like a little thrown off by the stiltedness of it. And I actually thought maybe that was more of a product um, of her writing for middle grade before writing a young adult book. The time, like the age group is so close together but just like a little bit more mature and I feel like um middle grade stuff is like very short sentences non-complex sentences and then I think that that was carried over which to me I think really works with the material because it's like being like Katniss is so matter of a fact because she has had to live through all of this she's had to live through starvation she's lived through her dad dying she just lives with like the daily trauma of seeing people die from starvation on on the streets and so I'm like yeah her internal monologue would be dry as time gets goes on in the book actually the sentences get a little bit more complex as she's dealing with more complex things and starting to have more feelings than like this is bad and I need to survive which she's still having those specific feelings. This is bad and I need to survive, but it's not, it becomes externalized too. What a literary uh, thing to notice. I super did not notice that. Um, (laughs) And I think that's so valid that I think like, okay, one thing I will say is that like what I think makes this a YA book rather than a middle grade book is literally just the murder, right? Like everything else is like, if you age Katniss down, two years, three years, like she becomes a middle grade acceptable age, right? You have a lot of like actual children. You have Prim, you have Rue, like all of these are middle grade acceptable companions, right? And also it's just the kissing and she doesn't even have that many feelings about the kissing. We will talk about this more later, but like the kissing is mostly like, please don't kill me, give me food. Yes. Smooch, like that's a lot of what the kissing is in this book. And so I feel like you're right. You can see the middle school author, Suzanne Collins, but you're right that it also works for the context because Katniss is traumatized, which also brings me 
to just this one thing that I wrote down specifically. I Let me set the stage, okay. right? I'm reading this book. It's a slow day at work. I Page one, first page of The Hunger Games, which I completely forgot like almost everything about this, including this one line, which is Buttercup the Cat. It's lore for Buttercup. Page one, Katniss is like, this cat hates me because I tried to drown him. Like, this cat doesn't like me because I tried to kill him that one time. And now we sort of have an uneasy alliance because we both love my sister. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) It's top tier characterization for Katniss, right? Like, this is like a girl who only thinks about survival including the fact that in order to survive, she cannot share her table scraps with a cat, and therefore it makes the most sense to drown him. I have to tell you something that you're going to (laughs) hate that I'm bringing this up. I'm not excited. (laughs) Okay. So, funny enough, the intro sequence of this book is very, very similar (laughs) to the moment, the book of the moment of the time right now, a Court of Thorns and Roses. You can't see my face, audience, but I am flat. I am <laughs> displeased. So I've read A Court of Thorns and Roses. I've read them. They're fun to read. Um, And when I read the beginning, I was like, this has like a familiar feeling to it when I first read it. And then I was reading this book and I was like, oh, it's the same intro. All right. So, Teddy, I know you haven't read A Court of Thorns and Roses, and I know you never will. I have read the first chapter on a beach. you have? Wow. And I think that's hilarious because that's the only relevant chapter that I'm willing to discuss with you right now. But here's what I remember, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. She goes hunting in the woods with a bow and arrow. There's some kind of animal that she has to take down. I think it's a giant wolf. She kills it. And she brings it home to her starving family uh, because she is the huntress of the family and provides them with food, correct or false. That is correct. And on top of that, you know how Katniss gets into the descriptions of her mom basically going into like a, a, she's going into shock because her husband has died. And that is very, very similar to what's going on with Feyre's dad in A Court of Thorns and Roses in the opening. opening, He is, like, not helping provide for the family. And Feyre is very angry at him. And then Katniss has the same exact anger towards her mom. So I was, like, kind of taken aback by that. Um, You know... (laughs) Just kind of funny, but I don't know if it's like a direct one for one in the sense of like, obviously I'm not saying that Sarah J. Maas read The Hunger Games and was like, and here's the intro for my book. But I do think like, it's just funny that it's, there's an attractive like, um, fantasy sci-fi level, I think, to somebody like a, a younger woman with a bow and arrow shooting and like killing animals to provide for her family. I feel like sets up like a similar characterization for those two characters um so yeah i just had to bring i just had to say that because i was just struck by how similar it was and pharaoh's like only main character trait basically for the whole book is that she wants to protect her family and more specifically her sisters i think that that is really interesting because also you recall 
in the Hunger Games era, right? Like who did not give themselves a side braid, right? Like it was a hot thing to be a Katniss type. Like I think there's a certain pull allure of being the strong girl who is like not interested in the love triangle, not interested in like only interested in protecting herself and the people that she loves. I think that that is like a rich archetype that we have a lot of examples of, but especially in YA. Sarah, do you think A Court of Thorns and Roses is YA? I don't know. I don't know where I would put it. I do think that uh, women who write fantasy end up in the YA section a lot more often um, than men who write fantasy with same level characters. Um, and I do know that there's like a general cultural feeling um, from like people who are haters about YA that like YA is non-serious and also means that like you never grew up if you read YA as an adult. And unfortunately, what happens is people forget these are like arbitrary, almost arbitrary lines that we draw. Anyway. Anyway. Right. Back okay. to the Hunger Games. Let's say this wrap up sentence, which is just that YA is good. It is healthy and lovely and healing for your inner child to read YA. It is also interesting and can provide some of the most relevant cultural criticism of the time. With that in mind, let's talk about the love triangle. <laughs> Okay, 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 okay. Okay, I know you have your table, but I just want to say, I'm not sure there is a love triangle. That's fake news. I have evidence. I know that there is some textual evidence for this, but I think that there's not a love triangle in the Team Edward, Team Jacob way. And I do think that the Hunger Games fell victim to that in a big way. Because I actually think... The love triangle is uh, is Gail and Peta both having feelings for Katniss as Katniss is like, I'm too traumatized to have feelings for anybody. <laughs> and it's like being pushed on her. I mean, we all know she falls in love with Peta. I didn't know that. She does in the later book. So I just feel like sometimes reductive to only have YA books be reduced down to who's the girl gonna pick? So valid, but also it's juicy hot goss and we are going to talk about it. I think I appreciate your feminist take. And as a fellow feminist, I'm so with you on this. Uh, Also, give me the goss. I think, right, like, I think it is fair to say that this love triangle is being forced on her. You get this, like, distinct feeling that, like, all things considered, if she were never picked for the games, Katniss would end up with Gale in some capacity, either as lifelong platonic soulmates or being married and doing illegal things in the woods. Um, But because that does not happen, we get this like juicy situation. (laughs) Um, So uh, I do want to note their first introductions to us, right? We have Gail and then Peta. Um, So Gail's first introductory line, I believe, is in the woods waits the only person with whom I can be myself, period. Gail, period. So that's kind of a hot take. Like Katniss can only be herself with this one human being, not Prim, right? Like that's a hugie. Um, definitely not her mom, but we didn't know that. Um, dad's dead. 
presumably he was number one on this list. But another hotline from this introductory session to Gail is this, this quote, he could be my brother, but we're not related, at least not closely. Yummy. Yum, yum, yum. What a delicious, horrible line that is. And I think that that's interesting, right? Like when we're talking about, obviously the seam, District 12, we're talking about Appalachia, right? Like we know that this is a new version of North America. District 12 deals with coal mining. It just makes sense when we're talking about like basically a post-apocalyptic Eastern seaboard that this would be Appalachia. And it's very interesting that right away we're getting a little close to incest rumors. Um, not sure I love that for you, Suzanne, um, but it is there. Um, I feel like it's a little bit, to me, I get I get what you're saying right now, but I also feel like it's a little bit more like they've sequestered the districts from each other. So, and it's been like a generation and a half at this point, right? So... It could be that a lot of the people are related to each other. And then you can, it's like, you can only get so far from like your cousin. You know what I mean? Because you're sequestered At this point off from the in the book, people. we do not know that there are districts that are not quite so big. Right? Like, or, right. Yeah. Like District 11, where Rue comes from, the agricultural mm-hmm. district, am I getting this correct? Is gigantic. Yeah. And comparatively, District 12 is quite small. Yeah. Um, so I see where you're coming from. So valid. I think you're right. Um, it's like a, what, what, it's like Scandinavian countries, some of them. like it's like it's There's a database. Yeah, the Iceland one, right. I think, right? In Iceland, they have a database so you can confirm that you're not related at all to somebody else because everyone's pretty much related to each other. But that's because it's a smaller nation, you know? And it's isolated. Right. Yeah. Okay. Valid point. Super true. But also... It's just funny. We're setting this up. It's it's very romantic to be like, we could be related. We could be cousins. Who knows? Um, okay, so uh, that's Gail's first introduction, right? And we also have, oh, also just like, this is also all up in the same like intro paragraph. We get that Gail has a special nickname for Katniss, which is that he calls her Katnip uh, because he misheard her the first time that she was too shy to speak loudly enough to say her name. Um, and also it was confirmed by a lynx that followed her around in the woods for a number of days, which just sort of like sealed in the catnip nickname until she killed it. So (laughs) toughy. Again, I feel like we're just, for whatever reason, we're really sticking with like the Katniss characterization as like needs must by killing cats or attempting to kill cats, um, which isn't great. Um, But then there's also, right, in the same introduction thing, this quote, uh, which says, Gail won't have any trouble finding a wife. You can tell by the way girls whisper about him when he walks by in school that they want him. Interesting. It makes me jealous, but not for the reason that people would think good hunting partners are hard to find. Uh, Calling bullshit. Calling bullshit right away. Uh, Not for the reason that people might think. I think this is a case of Katniss does not know how to have feelings and is hiding behind hunting. And this is not to say that I think Katniss is not a complex person who can have feelings about stuff that are only related to love and relationships. I just think that's a bullshit excuse and it's pretty flimsy. 
Can I ask you about on page 10 when Katniss says, there's never been anything romantic between Gail and me. What about that? Is that, is that, is that she is protesting too much? The lady doth protest too much, um, I will say. And also, I will say that uh, you'll notice that that's in the past tense. Uh, It does not block off anything current or future. And, and uh, I think there's this thing that happens with Katniss. You see this later in the book that um, what she defines as something romantic has a lot to do with the physicality of it. She won't address feelings as romance, um, which is kind of hilarious. She she just like, she's like, oh, I'm having complex feelings about this guy. Uh, weird. <laughs> Given what we know and come to find out about our good friend Catnip is that... <laughs> If she's having romantic feelings for her, that's not something romantic happening between me and Gail. That's just something weird that she needs to like shove away. My kind of feeling on it is that she knows that Gail likes her. Absolutely. And she's not sure if she feels that way back. You know, I think I think that that's what it might be, because the kind of the text and it almost has like when she thinks about Gail, even later when she's kissing Peta. She is thinking about what Gail's thinking about it, but not being like, and I felt badly. It was just more like being like, well, I wonder what he thinks when I'm doing this. I think because she knows that it's probably breaking his heart in more than one way, you know? Yeah, the I'm going to be dead if I don't do this way. And the, oh no, she's kissing another boy way. Yeah. yeah. Those are two feelings yeah. that are tough to have at once. Poor Gail. Yeah. yeah. Let me PETA it up for a second because um, our first real introduction to PETA is uh, Katniss volunteers for Prim, right? Like she's got it. She's not going to let her little sister go. She gets picked. And then PETA's name is drawn. And she says, no, the odds are not in my favor today. What the fuck? Right? So like, we don't know PETA from Adam at this fucking point. But something about him getting drawn is unlucky. Um, And interestingly enough, one of the first things that she says about PETA after this like weird thing where she's like, oh, it's bad luck that we got picked for the same Hunger Games is... So, right, we know that Katniss's main activity with Gale is that they go hunting together. Uh, And when she's describing Peeta's reaction to getting picked for the games, she says, the shock of this moment is registering on his face. You can see his struggle to remain emotionless, but his blue eyes show the alarm I've seen so often in Prey. Woof. Woofy woof, right? Like, this is our huntress being like, that kid's a rabbit, you know, like that's, that's not a strong opening. Um, but then we get into the whole thing about the bread. Did PETA on purpose badly burn two loaves of bread so that he could feed Katniss and her family? Uh, he's a town kid, so he's presumably wealthier. Um, we find out later that all the bread he does eat as a result of his family owning this bakery is incredibly stale. He had a hard life too. His mom is bad. Um, 
But like, there's this potential that he used his class privilege, right, to feed Katniss. Um, and then I made a note about something that I called da the Dandelion of Hope TM, which is that Katniss <laughs> really remembers seeing this dandelion. Because uh, she's waiting for spring, right? Right. And it, it closely associates, so PETA becomes associated almost immediately with two things, prey animals and hope in hard times, which is interesting. Um, so I'll say that for now. Thoughts? Um, well, I think that PETA definitely burned the bread on purpose. Um, I think that our, our lovely Katniss Everdeen is an unreliable narrator um, because she, especially with the PETA situation, because she thinks that PETA is acting. And I remember when I read this book in middle school, so did I. I also thought PETA was acting. What Be the fuck? Yeah, because I believed her because I, because in my opinion of um, a first person narrative um, is when you can self insert into it you become the story and i felt like i became her so i believed everything she was telling me because i was the first book came out in 2008 and i that means i was 12 so i believed her you know like i was like i am in this with you i'm here whatever you tell me i will believe so i thought that Peter was lying too so when I first read these books, I will say, I was like, it needs to be Gail. She needs to end up with Gail. But rereading them now, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, PETA did all these things because he genuinely meant them. And I think that Hamish was in on it, knowing what he was doing. Um, because he was like, probably went and talked to him and was like, I do have these feelings for her. I've always had a crush on her. And Hamish was like, you should use that. Um, we, we can use that as a strategy, right? But I, but like all of the things that he says, like when Katniss is kind of awestruck in the series where he's explaining how he had a crush on her from the first day that he like met her with the two braids in elementary school, Katniss was like, wow, you have a really good memory. <laughs> But that was, like, her only way of, like, expressing, like, how awestruck she was by the fact that he mem remembered it. And then she kind of said a line, something like, I'm not sure, like, he's really good at pretending about this. Maybe he's not? The Katniss, he's really good at pretending bit gets so old so quickly. Yeah. She is such a smart girl that it goes on for a little too long, I, I that, feel like. I think that she doesn't think that she is worthy of being cared for. I think that she is so used to taking care of other people that she cannot see a world where somebody would prioritize taking care of her. That's so fucking sad. I know. I think that that's what it is. So I think it's easier for her to have these feelings of like, he must not like me. He must be pretending. Because even if she cares about him even a little bit or lets herself think he cares about her that means she's vulnerable she does suck at being vulnerable i will say she doesn't want to be she's had the one time she was vulnerable she feels like deep shame for it which by the way is what 
societies do when they keep you impoverished. They keep you from relying on each other. They keep you separated from each other and keep you away from each other and not wanting to build those connections because you feel like you're going to end up having to fight them to the death in an arena. Shelving cart strongly endorses mutual aid groups. That's correct. (laughs) And community building and caring for people. And the trauma of being, you know, starving and also oppressed by your government is so high that you can't forget that casually. And I do think that we see that in Katniss a lot. Um, Now, do I know if Suzanne Collins did this on purpose? I'm not sure. But I do think she did present us at the very least with a traumatized character and how seeing the world through the lens of somebody who just can't get past that. I think it's frustrating to read Katniss sometimes now as an adult because you're like, girl, just open your eyes, <laughs> right? But you're like, wait a second, like she can't. She can't let herself feel those feelings. I think that's such a compassionate read of Katniss where like as an adult now, right, I love, I love mutual aid. I think also like that my read of this book was very like, this is such a resonant and accurate uh, portrayal of society then and society now. A lot of the issues discussed in this book have only been exacerbated uh, by time and the people in power. And I really appreciated that. But I, at the same time, was like, you dummy for a lot of it. And so this is helping me be a little nicer to Katniss. Um, that being said, I do have some really funny Katniss one-liners uh, that were... Oh my God. And I have yeah. some... I have some PETA ones. Okay, too, so. let's go. Okay, so here's here's a direct comparison from my table. Um, I can't help comparing what I have with Gail. Ah, what I have with Gail. That's a something right there that I forgot to mention the first time around. What I have with Gail to what I'm pretending to have with PETA, it's not a fair comparison, really. Gail and I were thrown together by a mutual need to survive. PETA and I know each other's survival means our own death. So that's a hugey. Not so much a funny one-liner, but I did need to get it in there. Katniss has a Tracker Jacker incident. She uses them to kill a couple of careers, um, but gets stung a couple times herself. It's not great. She's like struggling, barely hanging in. She's thinking about Gail as she's like having a hard time. Um, And then it says, and suddenly I'm not thinking of Gail, but of Peta. Um, and she starts like going down this rabbit hole of like, what is the lover boy angle? Like, is this really what's happening? And then she starts thinking of Gail again, like what he's making of the whole thing. And then (laughs) this is, I think this is the best indicator of Katniss as clueless in the whole thing. For some reason, Gail and Peta do not exist well together in my thoughts is the direct line. <laughs> just just for some reason, that's not working out well for me. And uh, again, I think, you know, there's the gentle read of this that is like, you know, oh, like, you don't know how to have feelings. Like, you are incredibly traumatized. Like, this must be really hard for you. And then there's the less compassionate reading, which was my reading at the time, which is, come on, bitch. Like, you know. Like, you know why. Um, but I think Sarah has won me over with that reading. Um, and then loosely tied into this is um, 
she has this conversation with PETA on the roof of the training center uh, the day before they go in where he's really like, I want to find a way to not lose myself to the games, right? Like how to show the capital that I am still PETA um, and not just a pawn, essentially, right? Truly such a moment for him. Yep. Iconic, iconic PETA line. It's the the heart of the story before Katniss realizes it. Absolutely. And that is why PETA forever. Um, but yep. she then in the games is thinking about Gail again and thinking about what PETA would think of Gail. And she says, what would PETA think of the irreverent irreverent banter that passes between us being Katniss and Gail as we break the law each day would it shock him the things we say about Pan Am Gail's tirades against the Capitol my notes literally say this seems unfair babe he told you he wants to stick it to them like I think like Peta would be you know it would take some warming up but I do feel like he'd get in on it no like I feel like he's proven that yes um yes so I think anybody who's ever stepped foot into the Hunger Games arena um, would pretty much feel that same way. Um, the In the movie, now I'm mixing them up together in my head right now, Kato in the movie at the end was like, is like sobbing with blood coming out of his mouth being like, I thought this is what I wanted and it's not. I thought that I wanted to do this and it's not. I don't want to die. That is not in the book. Uh, It's a good part in the movie. Kato's death in the book is fucking insane because he's wearing that armor, right? And so the mutts are really struggling to kill him because he's so suited up. And it takes over an hour. I know. Before Katniss pity, pity kills him. Pity kills him. And I... I don't remember, like, if she's like, oh, I'm going to do it or what the, like, driving force of it is. I think maybe she needs to get an angle on him because he's in the cornucopia. She Um, needs an angle on his head, basically. Right, because he's got his armor on. But he doesn't beg for it. And it just takes a long time and he is tortured to death, essentially. Um, But, yeah, I think that that's a really interesting addition to the movie. Yes, it is, but... It's a little bing, 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 let's be yes. clear. Yes. Um, PETA, back to PETA for a second, is what you said, where it was like, what would he think of our irreverent, like, back and forth? It's like, um, hang on a second, who's the most irreverent motherfucker in this book? It's PETA. It is absolutely PETA. That man knows how to tell a fucking joke, Okay. I have these two written down, but there's so many good, but like so many better examples too. But when they get the food in the cave and it comes on like plates and everything, and then like he he and Katniss are joking around about Effie, and then he goes, he takes his fork and throws it to the back of the cave and goes, Watch this, Effie, and starts eating with his hands. She loved that. I can tell that from the Capitol, Effie was having a great time. No, I think that that's hilarious. And he's true. Like, he's totally irreverent. Totally like, fuck it. Um, And that's funny, too, because, like, he just got a sponsor's gift, right? And this is truly him being like, I acknowledge a gift. I am going to eat it. 
I'm going to eat it with my fucking fingers. Yes, exactly. And and when Katniss literally steps on him when she's trying to find him and then he just goes, he goes, you here to finish me off, sweetheart? That was hot. No <laughs> lie. He's like lying covered in mud. He's like dying. He's like, you here to finish me off, sweetheart? It's like, no, I'm going to nurse you back to health and I'm going to love the shit out of you. That's what I would have said for sure. And that's why I'm not Katniss because she was like, whatever, let's go. My poor, sweet baby bread boy. At the end of the book, right at the end, the last like lines of the book are so heartbreaking because PETA, our poor boy, thought that Katniss was not playing along. He thought that she was being legit. That is so fucking sad. And he says, I'm just going to read this passage out loud from the book. Out of the corner of my eye, I see Peta extend his hand. I look at him, unsure. One more time for the audience, he says. His voice isn't angry. It's hollow, which is worse. Already the boy with the bread is slipping away from me. I take his hand, holding on tightly, preparing for the cameras and dreading the moment when I will finally have to let go. It's like so good because as soon as P- as Katniss reveals to Peta that she doesn't have these real feelings for him and it breaks his heart, she realizes that she does have those feelings for him. Objection, Your Honor. Objection. I would like to insert a moment into the timeline when Katniss realizes that she does want him before she realizes that he doesn't know it's an act. I realized how much I don't want him to die, and it's not about the sponsors, and it's not about what will happen back home, and it's not just that I don't want to be alone. It's him I do not want to lose the boy with the bread. Mic drop. (laughs) I mean, it is, it's heartbreaking because I think what happens at the end is Katniss is realizing it's too late. She's already vulnerable. Oh no. She was trying to wall herself up from him and she couldn't because the boy with the bread is so sweet. He's the dandelion of hope TM, you know? He is. I, and the little blonde hair just goes perfectly with it. Did you have anything that you disliked about this book? Disability rep, bitch. This shit sucked. And I will say why. Uh, so I'm just going to read a quote, actually, direct from Katniss. Um, and in so much as we can assume that Katniss is a self-insert for Suzanne, which... We can maybe make an argument for, maybe not. Uh, But this was a fucked up line to include anyway. Uh, So, okay, let's run down a list of disabled characters, right? We've got the disabled boy from 10 who makes it halfway through the games. Uh, He has a bad leg Uh, and he's there. We don't hear almost anything about him. No one's really that concerned about him. Um, but he does make it halfway through and then he dies without much comment. Um, PETA obviously loses a leg. Uh, that becomes more of an issue in the second book. Um, and by issue, I just mean talking point. It's not really anything that like affects his character too much. He's just sort of unbalanced. I think it comes back later, um, in probably book three, when we're talking about like the disability politics of like limb amputation um but i think there's a certain amount of like 
wartime disability, like wounded combat vet versus old person. And like, that's an interesting line to draw in the sand, but I see it drawn in the book. I would also just want to say that in the movies, that does not happen. He does not lose his leg in the movies. I'm so sorry, what? He does not lose his leg in the movies. What the fuck? So the movies were like, we will draw the line in the sand and say, that doesn't happen. Uh, the movies drew the line in the sand at fuck disabled people. Uh, but yeah. I will also say that there are two other... the the We don't know what what's up with District 10 boy's leg. Like, I don't... Do we? Like, it's just he has a bad leg. Like, it's unclear if it was an accident, he was born with the leg, that doesn't work, or what. But PETA loses his leg. Then we get into children with uh, mental disabilities. Uh, And there are two examples of this. Um, Trigger warning, it's not good. Um, We're talking inbuilt eugenics, right? Like, this is not good. So I'll start with the really violent one first, which is that Rue shares with Katniss... They're both violent in different ways, but this is like murder. Rue shares with Katniss that she knows what the night vision goggles are because they use use them in her district and that a disabled boy who didn't understand the consequences that this would bring stole a pair of night vision goggles and was killed by peacekeepers. Um, So that's... That's one. And then two uh, is that there is a disabled girl in Katniss's district in 12. And this is a direct quote that I'll take from the book. She wanders around the hob, the black market, right? She's not quite right, but she's treated as a sort of pet. People toss her scraps and things. Ah, what the fuck, Sarah? Get in here. It's not it's not good. It's not good. And you know what? I think it's very, very like 2007 too. I mean, just the, even the language that she uses, I believe she says something along like somebody who's like not right in the head. Like I think that that's what they they say. Um, I think probably given the the chance it would be rewritten but we all know in 2008 like people were very aware that you also should not talk about people with disabilities that way (laughs) too i mean not as much now but you know there is the time component just to keep in mind and that katniss in her head was like oh this is better at least that we feed our pets right we feed our pet we don't shoot them in the head exactly I'm not sure if it's more of, like, um, Suzanne Collins. If we take out the language, right, used, I'm not sure if it's Suzanne Collins kind of commenting just in general on, like, how horrible this society is towards people who are different, you know? Or who, like, divert off of the their usefulness towards the labor for the capital. Let's, yeah, I think, to be clear, I certainly believe that Suzanne Collins added these depictions of disabled people to be like, and isn't it horrible <laughs> the way that the capital treats people who are disabled and um, fumbles it. I think that, like, there was certainly a moment in here to talk about, like, you know, she is so adept 
at drawing these like beautiful direct comparisons between lived experience in 2008 and this sort of like extrapolated capital in some ways like we can really compare her to margaret atwood like it is prescient um and this is just she fumbled it she fumbled it with the disability stuff i think there was definitely a way to do this that was more of a pointing the finger and uh it just didn't it didn't happen it's it's probably the most unlikable that um Katniss gets I would say agree with her thoughts and then um I mean even Ruth's story is way better right and like not obviously it's dark right. and horrible and extremely bigoted but it's the capital creating that bigotry right and creating that hatred and that brutality which is like that's what the quote-unquote peacekeepers are doing whereas we get a much different perspective from cat when katniss is kind of like like spewing out that same hate you're like oh, wrong you know it's like yeah right like the the opposite of shooting a disabled person in the head is not believe it or not keeping one yes, as a pet exactly and then last thing this is my last critique and it's a goodie yeah. are you ready the chariot ride right um not nearly enough description of the outfits not even close uh this was heartbreaking right we know about cinna's beautiful creation for katniss and pita very good highly revolutionary so like in you know inciting revolution rebellion that way like i love i love cinna is the king of my life um we're actually getting married cinna's my boyfriend um <laughs> Cinna's your fiance. Cinna is <laughs> Cinna's my fiance. Um, but there's just so much skipping of outfit descriptions on that chariot ride. We know that District 1 is wearing jewels and silver. We know that District 12 is wearing what they're wearing, girl on fire, starting the rebellion. We literally do not know anything about Districts 2 through 11. Give me the fits. I want the fits. You know, I will say, I think probably for the sake of brevity, she did not, Suzanne Collins did not include a whole lot of description of the other, the other tributes, like a lot. Most of them don't have names. Yeah. Boy from District 10. Hit me. What's your name? That's, that's true. And you know what? Speaking of names, <laughs> when I read this the first time, I had no idea that Foxface was not Foxface's name. That's just Katniss's nickname for her. Uh, yeah, that's definitely true. I would say my main dislike, and this comes to a literary dislike, not like a plot-based dislike, but um, when I I am not a huge fan of first-person narrative, um, because I think it's really hard to do it well. Um, sometimes I find in first-person narratives when it's not written well, um, I just get mad because I'm like, I don't think like that. That's not how my brain works. Here's a silly example. If I was thinking about my boyfriend and I just said my boyfriend, right? To Because I'm talking about him kind of as like a noun of like... The stationary object that is my boyfriend. Right, exactly. Right. But when I look at my boyfriend, I don't go, and then my boyfriend turned around and looked at me. If I'm thinking about my thoughts, it's like Sam turned around, Right. That's how you think about it. And I don't like it when characters don't think like actual humans. 
So I would say, by and large, 99% of the time, Suzanne Collins does not do that with Katniss. Katniss is thinking like a person. Um, But I got really annoyed (laughs) at the scene where she's talking about how Prim got her goat. Like, I didn't tell Peta the real story, but I'll tell the real story now. And I'm like, who are you telling the real story to? Is this your diary? Is this your journal? Like, I don't like that. It's like basically like fourth wall breaks, but in books, I'm like, who are you talking to? Like, you know, like I also hate in books when they say the phrase, dear readers, here's the real story of how I got the money for Prim's goat lady. Um, and I was like, who? I wrote in my notes, who is she talking to? Who is she talking to? Is she talking to me? Like, don't talk to me. If even if she just cut out the phrase, he it got rid of the word here infinitely better infinitely better that is like just a literary pet pet peeve for mine i have one more question we have not touched on this basically at all how do we feel how do you feel about rue love of my life i know rue um yeah we can't escape the racial politics of this, even though Suzanne tries really hard to do it. Um, and I see it and I acknowledge that in the world of the Hunger Games, it doesn't seem like there is the same thing that we know as institutional racism, right? Like, or she tries to suggest that like that might not be the case. Like Katniss does not say that Rue is black, um she says that she has dark skin and thick curly hair um i think you know we don't escape the fact that both rue and thresh are from the agriculture district um which has its own connotations and i think was intentional um and also that it is the most heavily policed district uh we see that in Book one, right? Yeah. Um, And I think it's hard. You know, there's a certain amount of, like, Suzanne avoiding it, a certain amount of Suzanne leaning in. um, But at the end of the day, Rue dies for Katniss's character growth, um, which is tough. Um, Yes. Tough, tough moment um, that I don't love i think the setup offers suzanne some grace right that like everyone else does eventually have to die um and i think offering rue as her own kind of martyr was an interesting choice right like katniss plays with this idea a lot where in the, in the second book, which I just finished, she's like, oh, it would be better if I died in the quarter quell because Peta is the better talker. Um, and I would do well as a martyr. It's interesting, this like martyrdom of Rue where she dies, Katniss covers her in flowers so that at least when they take her up in the hovercraft, they will not be able to ignore the fact that she did do that, even if they cut the footage of her placing the flowers. Um, And I think that's sort of interesting that she later will become her own martyr, but Rue will play an important role in her interactions with District 11. Um, 
But Rue as a character is just what's not to love. She is truly one of the best characters in this book, I think. You know, like Prim, yeah. take or leave. Rue for sure take. I think that what you said, I, I definitely agree with. But I think what's interesting is I actually, well, a couple things. I think it changes perspectives a little bit depending on whether or not Katniss is read as white or not white. That has been like a heavily. So true debated topic obviously even if she's not white she's not black right we know that um as suzanne collins intended it does kind of change it a little bit i would say but i do think the fact that i have like a very mixed feelings because i do feel like the setup of like um district 11 being the agricultural district and like being the most heavily policed and I think that that is actually a very well done representation of this. And then the fact that Rue dies in some way, I can read her death as being like, this is a catalyst for more things because that is literally representative of American society. I think what she was trying to go for, and I'm not saying that she does this 100% well, is going for more of a, and this is who the capital will kill first. And this is who dies first, right? And this is who whose death is first. I think turning into like Katniss's char- character growth, that's the tough part. But then on the flip side of that is that Katniss says, and I think that this person is worth mourning. I think this death is too much of a death. And that's when she really starts to feel like super uncomfortable with everything. And I think that that is something like we shouldn't have a young black girl die for our character to feel that way. But I think unfortunately, that's something even now that we don't have happen. Young black girls die and people don't give a shit in this country. And what Katniss is saying is saying, I care i fucking care about this person and i wasn't supposed to care about her because we were supposed to be pitted against each other by nature of our districts which we could also read on a race line and i was supposed i'm not supposed to care because you've artificially separated us from each other but i do care and that is why i am honoring her and her death now do i think it's the best thing on the planet that rue has to die for katniss to care like that no again coming in with the generous but probably correct read i think that you're right that that is probably what suzanne was shooting for and i think yeah i mean like i would say it's like 75 percent of the way there right i think if we got more rue time i would feel better but it does almost feel like rue comes on screen to die right and that is tough right like that's tough yeah i think you know and let's also acknowledge right like we're two white people discussing this like and suzanne collins is a white lady too right and so like we can critique this on the level of like white person to white person um in your case like white woman to white woman like how how we interact with this is important i think also like at the end of the day we're never going to be able to say anything with like finality or like yeah yeah absolutely and i think um it's like revolutionary to show again the the care like a community of care for each other right you know um but yeah it is it's 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 tough and Katniss does genuinely care for her yeah I think this gets addressed a little in the second book too that Katniss deals with the loss of Rue 
very personally, but then the loss of Rue also becomes very politicized. And on their victory tour, Katniss and Peeta go to Eleven, and um, Katniss is confronted with Rue's family, um, who are obviously devastated by the loss of their child and sibling. Um, And they sing the tune that Rue sang to signal closing shift, which also I have to say, Rue, the symbolism of Rue teaching Katniss the song for Call It Quits is unbearable. Like it's just so salient. Um, And so District 11 sings that song to Katniss once one man sings the song um, and then is immediately shot in the head. And there is yep. a huge uh, following rebellion. Um, and in that sense, like, I think the memory of Rue being utilized is less a critique of how we use dead Black people to incentivize social change, but is an accurate reflection of the way that yes. we do that. Um, yes. Yeah, that's, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Those 30 <laughs> pages with Rue are some of the best 30 pages in the book. Like, she yes. is just such a good, uh, good character. You love her immediately. That was really successful. Like, Katniss is yes. like, oh, yeah, like, this little thing. And you're like, oh, this little girl hops from tree to tree and knows yes. about tracker jackers and, like, yes. is has never eaten a whole grueling leg before like you know she's instantaneously loved um she should have been our hero you know what i mean oh so that's like i think what it gets across is like she should have been our hero but because the society cannot treat people as they should be and in particularly black people she does not get to be our hero even though she would be a better hero than Katniss. Fan fiction time someone someone get in there and just rewrite the entire thing and then make Rue live at the end. Oh my god. Yeah. Who gives a shit about the boy with the bread? <laughs> give me Rue. Give me Rue. <laughs> and also, TBH, give me Thresh. Like, what yes. was Thresh up to that whole time? There's like this whole I thing. Know. In, in the in the grass? In the what meadow. What was he doing? What was he doing out there? How was he living? He killed a fuck ton of people, right? Like, yeah. bless Thresh. I love the we're even now scene. Um, yes, me too. It's, that was huge. It's, it's so good and I think that even more hammers home the theme that Suzanne was definitely going for with the idea of community care. But it's so, the society is so broken that it's got done kind of like in a trading back and forth way. Right. But Thresh says, You honored somebody for my community. Therefore, I'm not doing this today. Maybe later. It's, it's like, yeah, maybe later, but it's for that moment. They're seeing each other as people, not competitors, which is what the capital doesn't want ever. I think a lot of people get from the Hunger Games, like there's always that meme. This meme has been circulating since the dawn of the Hunger Games, which to be fair is its own era of like pictures of people in Hollywood. You sent me a TikTok. Yes. This meme is not dead. It is alive and well. Right, of like this constant meme of taking pictures of celebrities like at the Met Gala or wherever the fuck they're being wild. 
and then drawing one-to-one comparisons of them with people in the capital. And I think people really understand the critique of class inequality in this book. I don't think that it is as common to understand this theme that you've pulled out of community care and making connections across artificial divides. I think that that is a less often taken away motif and theme. Um, And so want to genuinely thank you for bringing that um, into my discussion of a love triangle. Uh (laughs) Anywho, so... We've talked a lot about the Hunger Games, and we're going to continue, but I think we have a couple little segments. So, Ted, if you want to lead us off here. Yeah. So now that you know what we thought of the Hunger Games, let's uh, talk about what everyone else thought about the Hunger Games. Um, I took a look at Goodreads reviews, but the first available review on Goodreads for the Hunger Games was from 2013, which is already five years after the book was published. Um, Well, the first available review comes from someone who is a kindred spirit to to us in that uh, the username is Liblady, (laughs) which I have to assume means that this is a librarian. Um, So Liblady had this to say. She said that the plot wasn't that suspenseful and that the, which I think is such a fucking joke, um, the whole idea of, the Capitol and Pan Am was just too 1984 for me. And I think that's a really interesting description because is it the idea that like, if you talk about a surveillance state, you are necessarily copying from 1984 is like such a wackadoo thing, especially because when 1984 was written, the surveillance state then was laughable compared to the surveillance state now. Um, Thoughts, Sarah, weigh in. You know, it's just funny because 1984 is like the novel, but we act like it's the only one that's ever had that idea. (laughs) Science fiction deals with prescient problems. And if a problem doesn't go away, we're going to keep talking about it in science fiction. Um, Moving right on from Lib Lady. Um, And because I follow... Someone on Goodreads, their review was shown to me as like a friend's review. And I will say, N.K. Jemison, if you're listening to this, you are the love of my life. I will never love anyone as much as I love you. And this is your Goodreads review of The Hungry Games from the year 2010. Whoa, this book was brilliant and powerful, and I must have book two now. I have tried to ration it since I had no other really engrossing books on my desk. Hot that you keep your books on your desk. Uh, And I failed utterly, binged on the last half of it in one night and didn't get to sleep till 5 a.m. Been a long time since I've had a read this good. Now that should be a blurb on the back of The Hunger Games. Teddy, why were you withholding this? We should have just not even recorded a podcast episode. N.K. Jemisin said it all. Who needs to speak when N.K. Jemisin has already spoken? Honestly, I should have stopped us in our tracks when I found this review, but thought that maybe if we just paid it homage, it would be okay. Um, Okay. And then this one will bring us into a larger discussion. Mia, in 2016, so eight years after this book was published, had some accusations for us. Um, So her review starts, I was always put off of reading this book 
due to the astounding similarities which the synopsis has to one of my favorite novels, Battle Royale by Kushan Takami. Uh, These similarities are not only found in the synopsis, but do tend to resurface throughout the whole book. It's difficult to believe that Suzanne Collins has not read Battle Royale and taken incredibly heavy inspiration from it, yet apparently she had no knowledge of it. And so this is why we made that like, ha-ha funny joke at the beginning of the episode when we were talking about Suzanne Collins' supposed inspiration from flipping back and forth between reality TV and footage of the Iraq war, which is like a solid um, backstory. Uh, It's believable, one might even say. So here's what it is. Battle Royale was originally published as a book in Japan in 1999. And the summary is thus. A class of high school junior students is taken to a deserted island where, as part of a ruthless authoritarian program, they are provided arms and forced to kill one another until only one survivor is left standing. Um, It was then made into a movie in the year 2000, so one year after its publication date. Um, Quentin Tarantino, last year, called The Hunger Games a ripoff of Battle Royale on an episode of Jimmy Kimmel Live. But I think given his status as like a director. He was probably talking about the movies. Um, Elliot Farquhar, film aficionado and grad student, and also close friend of mine, uh, provided some thoughts for me um, on this. Uh, And I started with the leading question, uh, because I already knew zero position on this. Uh, Why do you think that the battle royale plagiarism accusations are bullshit? I was then dressed down for asking a leading question. Um, And after that, Elliot said um, (laughs) that there are a few reasons that he's frustrated by the comparison. The first being that Battle Royale is an incredibly popular and successful movie. That one film has is one of the most common Asian horror films that an American viewer has ever seen. It is an it has an incredible global viewership to this day. And it's a touchstone in a way that is similar to films like The Matrix or Ghost in the Shell. And so it's really difficult to uh, point to any one piece of media and say that it's plagiarizing one of these epics. Um, Z likened it to saying, oh, you plagiarized Romeo and Juliet, (laughs) Um, which I think is a hilarious comparison. Um, And also, right, we were talking about this earlier, like there's a certain amount of what can you call plagiarism and what is just like you're working within the cultural zeitgeist of the time? I was just going to say to kind of back up Elliot a bit too, is that the um, battle Royale, while very popular in the United States um, had like a pretty big lull in the United States because it was released in theaters, but then was not released on Blu-ray and DVD in the United States until 2012. So yeah. So if you were perhaps not, tapped in at that very moment when it came out in 2000 you could have missed it okay teddy before i get into all of this have you gotten to mocking jay yet on your reading okay so this is directly addressed in mocking jay and then i did all this research but if you don't know that when you're just reading only the hunger games you wouldn't realize that suzanne collins does address literally exactly where she got the idea of the hunger games from in the books i have come to the conclusion i'm gonna give you my thesis statement up front i've come to the conclusion that they were inspired 
by the same thing in Roman history, in ancient Roman history. Would that be perhaps the concept of gladiators, Sarah? No, actually, it's a <gasps> little what the different, fuck? but related. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yep. Okay, listen. So Suzanne Collins has also gone on record, besides the beautiful story of like the idea of the of where the Hunger Games came from in the first place. I think she started there with the channel surfing and then kind of bridged out. And she has explicitly said there's two big things. Gladiators were an inspiration. And so was uh, Greek mythology. She was particularly inspired by the myth of Theseus, um, which is the one where uh, Athens would sacrifice a group of children to the island of Crete for the Minotaur. And that she was kind of thinking of Katniss as a stand-in for a modern-day Theseus, going instead of going to die, going to kill the Minotaur. But in this sense, the Minotaur is the capital. Yes. Very sexy. Very good. And then also, how many times have we seen these ideas of people going into an arena and fighting to the death? Now, remember, in the earlier Hunger Games, it was literally they were put into a coliseum. And told to kill each other. It wasn't like an actual, like these, like sci fi arenas, right? So, but listen, in my research, I was reading this article from 2012. And at the end of this article from 2012, there was this reference to saying basically, it's, I'm paraphrasing, but the author wrote, was writing, um, Battle Royale was famously inspired by this concept of bread and circuses. And I was like, I have no idea what that is. I don't know about you, Teddy, but I never took like ancient history courses when Greek and Romans. I was never, I wasn't a Greek mythology kid. I can't lie. So I don't know this and I don't know ancient Roman history very well. And I never took a Latin class, right? So I'm so sorry, listeners, if you're like, this is so obvious, but this was a shock to me. While I was researching it, it was a shock to me. But later I realized that it was directly addressed in Mockingjay, which when I was researching, I had forgotten that. So a bread and circus is the idea. Um, It was uh, a a phrase coined by um, a Roman poet, an ancient Roman poet named Juvenal. And he was discussing how Roman rulers would provide free wheat to Roman citizens and then produce costly circus games to provide entertainment and gain political power. Okay, Teddy, do you know what the word for bread is in Latin? Holy shit, no. It's panem. Shut the fuck up right now. (laughs) It's literally panem. It's panem. It's Panem. I want to say that that Battle Royale is linked at the bottom of the Bread and Circuses Wikipedia page. Because that is confirmed inspired by that idea. Now, let me also say, part of Bread and Circuses and the Circus Games were preceded by a parade featuring the competitors of mounted youths on chariots one might presume so battle royale confirmed got its inspiration from bread and circuses suzanne collins confirmed got her inspiration from roman history vis-a-vis gladiators and greek mythology we can make some leaps that this would not have been something out of the loop for her if she was into Greek mythology, she was into this ideas, she would probably know this. 
And that is why I, bo- I think both of them were inspired by bread and circuses. And I bet if somebody asked Suzanne Collins about bread and circuses and panem being the Latin word for bread, she we would come to an understanding here. And I also do believe her when she says that she had not heard of Battle Royale before or seen the book, read the book or seen the movie because of what I said earlier about it not having a super wide release. I'm convinced. And so I think that it makes sense that two different people at around the same time were like, huh, why don't I get in there? I think your the Pan Am thing seals it. Suzanne, insofar as we can cleanse you of this accusation, we will do so now. We do not think that Suzanne Collins plagiarized The Hunger Games. Okay, Teddy, do you want to lead us into our next segment? We are two librarians, um, and I feel that we should lay out our book politic in terms of book as physical object. Um, So I think we can both agree that best case scenario for most books is that you borrow them from your local library. Um, Second best case scenario would be supporting an indie bookstore. Third best case scenario is just a regular bookstore. Your Barnes and Nobles, your Walmarts, your Targets, your big guys. And then your worst case scenario, just like, absolutely, we don't like you. Yes. We like you a little bit, but we're still mad at you is that you get your books from Amazon. And this includes Audible, Kindle, Kindle Unlimited, various other methods, including getting your book shipped to your house in one day on the backs of modern day slaves. So... (laughs) Um, I use a Kindle, like I have a Kindle that I buy and that I get library books on to my kindle and if you don't know how to do that you should learn how to do it um (laughs) you should learn how to do it please we are going to have a segment on every episode of this podcast where we will tally points um you get one point if you borrowed your book in any format including digital from a library It does not need to be a public library because Sarah does work at an academic library. Um, So you get one point if you borrow the book from a library. You do not get but do not lose points if you buy the book from an indie bookstore. Uh, You may gain back half a point if you needed to do that because your library did not have the book or the hold list was too long. You do not get any points and there's no option for redemption. (laughs) If you buy the book from Barnes & Noble, fucking Target, Walmart, whatever. If you buy the book from a big name, no points. And you lose two fucking points <laughs> if you buy your book from Amazon. Also subtract two points. Um, Sarah, where did you get this copy that you read of The Hunger Games? I got it from my library that I work at. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. Well, Teddy, where did you get your book? I got my book from my public library. I literally walked over to the YA shelf and pulled it off. But I can confirm that it had been beloved by the community. It was ragged. Well, Teddy, I think that that wraps up our inaugural episode of Shelving Cart. So join us in two weeks when we will be reading The Princess Bride, S. Morgenstern's classic tale of true love and high adventure, the good parts version abridged by William Goldman. 
Teddy, do you mind letting the people know where they can find us? You can reach us in various places. Um, you might reach us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok, all with the username shelving cart, one word, no caps, no numbers. Or if you'd prefer to old school it and email us, you can email us at shelvingcart at gmail.com. Please reach out. We want to hear from you. Bye. Signing off. One, two, three, four. Shelving cart. Shelving cart. Shelving cart. With Sarah and Teddy. Shelving cart. Shelving cart. Shelving cart. With Sarah and Teddy. Hey. Thank you for listening to Shelving Cart. Shelving Cart was created, written, and recorded by Sarah and Teddy, edited by Sarah, and the theme music is by Kate Gardine. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, please rate and review us on any of your podcast listening apps. We greatly appreciate it.